Our passage, our passage this morning is Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we love to be explicit with why we gather here each and every week. We, we gather here to worship. Let me be a little more specific. We, we gather here to worship the one true living God. To worship Him is to show Him as the one who is worthy of all of our attention, our affection, our love, our energy, our strength. He's worthy of all of those things. And so we turn to His Word where we learn who God is and what He has done that we might more fully informed with our minds and hearts and souls, worship this one true living God. Um, this morning we're in 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Just a note before we start that uh, uh, I'm only going to be doing verse 1. So when we're 30 minutes deep into this sermon and you're like, he's only in 1A, uh, you don't need to get nervous. We'll do verse 2 next week. With that in mind, let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, thank you for your word. What a mercy it is that we get to receive it and hear your voice. And I pray that's what we would do this morning. That as we read these words and think through them, that we would be hearing your voice, the voice of our beloved. And that you would change us and transform us by that word that goes out. And Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We spent a lot of time in Romans so far. We're almost a year into our time through the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul set out to talk to these Christians that he writes to that are in Rome about the gospel of God. The gospel that is from God and flows to God. It's, it's God's first and last. And this gospel of God that he started in 1-1 has now taken us to the place in chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, of, of we've gone this gospel of God all the way through chapter 11 to doxology, this praise and worship of this one true living God because of all the things that we've seen in the book of Romans so far. Like the, the doctrine of the gospel of God, the, the teaching, the the intricacies, all that has been woven through 1 through 11 in those chapters brings us to the point of, okay, so what are we to do with all of this? What the gospel does is it shows us this greatness of the reality of what God has accomplished, of what he has done and who he is, so that we get to this place of doxology, and now we need to think, all right, what does it look like to live this thing out? Because that's what the gospel does. We need to think about what our lives are to look like in reflection of and in light of, in response to the gospel of God. And Paul wants to bring us that very practical side of the Christian life. And because he does, he gives us all kinds of commands. And chapters 1 through 11 are, are not chapters that are full of commands. There are some for sure, but chapters 12 through 15, as we move towards the end of the book of Romans, are full of commands. That is, it seems that Paul has set it up this way. It's like, here, here's the gospel of God, chapters 1 through 11, and here's what you're to do in response to the gospel of God, chapters 12 through 15 and 16. And here's the response of a life to the gospel of God. It's to be all in with God. To be wholly devoted to God. To be wholly the Lord's. And this command that he's going to give here in chapter 12, verse 1, it has a really deep root, a really deep foundation. And so before he even gives us the command, he's going to encourage us and lead us to behold the mercies of God. And so Paul begins with a very personal appeal to these Roman Christians. Verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers... Appeal is not probably a word that has a lot of strength or emphasis in our minds. doesn't maybe sound strong, but, but that word could be urge, entreat. It, it's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, which, which Paul, he writes to the Corinthians, you know, this church was kind of a mess, and he starts to address that mess really, really quickly. He, so he, he writes them a letter, and he says, hey, I'm Paul, I'm thankful for you, Corinthians, and then he goes immediately to this, like, I appeal to you, I urge you that there be no divisions, divisions among you. You can just sense through the letter as you read 1 Corinthians, like, this is stronger than just, hey guys, here, I want you to listen to something. It's like, all right, I need you to listen here. 
He does the same thing in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. Towards the end of the, the letter to the Philippians, he, he, a personal, strong appeal to two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, like, guys, I need you to agree. It's more than just, I, I hope you guys can figure this out. He's urging them, like, you've got to figure this out. And it's the same kind of urging that he brings to bear in chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, I urge you, therefore, brothers. And he does this by something. By the mercies of God. Paul appeals by, or we could say through, God's mercies. He appeals through, by, the mercies of God. Now, we've seen the mercy used, that word used, different root, but I think rightly translated mercy, several times in the previous chapters. It's used nine times in chapters 9 through 11 in English, right? That word mercy. In chapter 9, verse 15, uh, this would be the time where those uh, scripture journals are really helpful. I did not put all these passages on the screen. You just flip through your little journal or your Bible in front of you to follow along in all these verses of Roman, but Romans, but 9.15 says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. There's a couple uses. And then verse 16, then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on the God who has mercy. Again, you look down at verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 23 of chapter 9, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of what? Mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. Or look to chapter 11, and at the end of chapter 11, he kind of comes to this crescendo of mercy. In chapter 11, verse 30, he says, Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And this word that's used throughout nine times in those last couple chapters remind that this is a God who shows mercy. And he is this sovereign and free God to show mercy to whom he will and to harden whomever he will. And here is a God who will have mercy. And he has mercy, showing this mercy in vessels of mercy. And in that mercy that he displays through these vessels, he is displaying the honor and the glory of his great name. So that it leads us to this place of, of you, God, are, are wonderful. How rich are you in your wisdom and knowledge? How unsearchable are your judgments? In chapter 11, as he ends and says, hey, I, I showed mercy to them so that you might receive mercy. Now he does this redemptive plan at the end of chapter 11 to remind everyone. And he says in verse 32, God consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. It's a reminder that mercy is only one thing and that is undeserved. It cannot be earned or merited by any work. Everyone has to come to the place to, if you're going to receive mercy to understand your need of mercy. No one can be fit for it. You can't work your way into it. It is only ever received and it is only ever received because of this God, who himself is God and will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He is the sovereign one who has the prerogative as God to show mercy to whomever he will, and he freely gives it to whomever he wills. And while this appeal by God's mercy, mercies, bridges chapters 9 through 11 here to 12, 1, verses, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, and that therefore, it invites us to start looking all the way back. It's saying, like, from what all we've seen so far, let's think about what we can deduce from these things. And so it invites us, I think, to go all the way back from after Paul started the letter, he gave a little greeting, and then from that material on, Paul is saying, I'm going to appeal to you by those mercies. In chapter 1, verse 16, we saw what? Paul was telling us about the gospel of God. He says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is good news, and it is good news that also lets us know that there is bad news. And the bad news is found in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And Paul's going to go on and kind of go like the scorched earth policy to make sure that in chapters 118 through chapter 3, verse 20, that everyone knows if they're reading this letter that they're part of verse 118, right? That they are part of the ungodly people who have turned away from the one true living God and are deserving of his wrath. He makes that plain. That all deserve that judgment from God. 
But he also tells us the good news. That God made a way for those deserving his wrath and judgment to be made righteous in his sight. What does he tell us in chapter 3? Hopefully you know this by heart, but I'll just keep repeating it over and over again. He says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but please don't stop there, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's that beautiful word again that we've looked at so many times, propitiation. God's wrath in chapter 1 is pointed at sinners, and they deserve it. And propitiation is a word that's pointed at that wrath, to turn it away. Propitiation, it's the same word that's used in Leviticus and in Hebrews to speak of the mercy seat. Do you remember in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle of the temple, there was inside the Holy of Holies a... a mercy seat, like this place where God would, would kind of, in a sense, come down and meet with the high priest. And the high priest could go into this mercy seat on the Day of Atonement, and, and they would have to come in, not just on their own, but they would have to come in bringing blood, a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And they'd take that blood and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat to cover their sins. And here's what Paul says, Jesus is that propitiation. God requires a propitiation that his wrath be turned aside and God himself provides it in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one who offers the blood. He is the one who is himself the mercy seat. He actually is the great high priest. It's a really strange image that you have the great high priest carrying his own blood to the place where God and man meet in himself. And that's who Jesus is. John Stott says it this way, that it's God himself who in his holy wrath needs to be propitiated God himself, who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating, and God himself, who in the person of his son, died for the propitiation of our sins. And what that propitiation does is it opens the way for justification of sinners, for sinners to have right standing, righteousness before one, the one true living God, a holy God. Because we can know that, as chapter 4, verse 25 says, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And if you are justified, chapter 5 says that you have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, verse 2, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. How does one go from chapter 1, verse 18, under the wrath of God and judgment of God, to chapter 5, where we have peace with God? The way out isn't getting our act together. Amen. The, the way out isn't earning merit or, or amassing some works to put before God to show Him how great our resume is. The, the way out isn't through like talking about our physical descent, how we came from the right lineage. The, the way out is through God's mercies. That's the only way out. And here's what he says. Here's when these mercies came. Verse 6 of chapter 5, while you were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die of a righteous, for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare him to die. But God, he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinner, or enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And you should hear over and over again in that language that there is only one hero of the story of our peace with God, and it is Jesus Christ. He's the hero of this. And if we're united to Him, we have this great truth that what is his now becomes ours. Like we didn't deserve peace with God. We didn't work our way into it. And in fact, we might say we're at peace with God. God's not at peace with us unless we come through Jesus. He has peace with God. He's fully uh, given his life in obedience to God. We have not. He's the hero. And so what be, is his becomes ours through this faith that unites us to him. And God's mercies are then told in union language, in Christ, with Christ kind of language. Look in chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, 
In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Look at that. In Him, with Him. In Him we've died. In Him and with Him we've raised. Like we were crucified and buried and now we're walking in newness of life. We're so united to Him that we can say, chapter 6, verse 11, that we can consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Or we could say, verse 14, Sin doesn't have dominion over us anymore because we're not under the law. We're under grace because we've died and have been raised. Or we could go on to chapter 6, verse 22 and say, now that we've been set free from sin because we really have in Christ Jesus, we've become slaves to God and the fruit we get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. We have a clear destination because we're united to him and his destination is secure. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those who are in Christ, united to him by faith, no longer have to consider, like, what's the destination? Where am I going? You no longer belong to sin and death anymore. That's not who you are. Now you belong wholly to God, and you present yourself to God as slaves to him, to what he wants, and you can walk with God in newness of life. We live because we've actually died. That's what he says in chapter 6 with all this union language. Union with Jesus here and now doesn't then all of a sudden magically rid us of all of sin's presence and problems. Chapter 7, right? It's this massive chapter in the middle of all this great explanation of our union with Christ and says there's still a problem with sin. It's still around. It's present and it causes troubles. Paul says this in chapter 7 verse 21. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That sounds pretty bad, but there's hope even in the midst of that because, again, we're united to Christ. Look in verse 24, wretched man that I am. Again, that sounds bad, but what does he do? He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, in other words, he's looking to him to finish what he started. You started this in me. I'm united to you, and you're the one who's going to deliver me. Jesus is the one who will finish what he started in those who are united to him by faith. By his mercy, Jesus saved. By his mercy, Jesus is saving. By his mercy, Jesus will save. That's the hope of Romans chapter 7. Amen. The means there, this means that there's, there's no future time, there's no future date for those who are in Christ who are going to then have the hammer dropped on them by God. Chapter 8, verse 1. We're not waiting for the hammer to drop, the wrath and judgment of God to drop on us. We're united to Christ now. The hammer's already dropped. So we can say, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't exist anymore. It's already been poured out, and it didn't fall on us. And so condemnation is what is deserved, but mercy is what is received in Christ Jesus. And what chapter 8, verse 1 starts, this verse just starts this flood of mercies that we see all through chapter 8 that we could spend a lifetime talking of together. Mercies of God abound in chapter 8. He speaks of the life in the Spirit. We were once hostile in mind, but now we have peace with God. We have life in the Spirit. We once were unable to please God, but now we have life and peace with God. We had once rejected God's fatherhood, living instead in slavery to fear and sin, but now we are those who are adopted by God and who we can cry out to God. Chapter 8, verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. As God's children, there's still going to be, he says in chapter 8, groaning along the way to glory. But there's help in that groaning. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's hope in these groanings. We know, verse 28, that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, that God is working things for the good of his children because his disposition toward them now isn't wrath and judgment, but is mercy, mercy, mercy. That's all that's directed at us from our Father in heaven now. 
And so what uh, chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 tell us is that mercy is not an afterthought, that we're foreknown, that we're predestined. God didn't just think, I, I, I guess I'll have mercy on this person today. Like, no, that's, that's not what happens. It's such a glory and a, a mercy to us that God would think of us, consider us. It's not an afterthought. I, I thought of uh, Sandlot when I thought of this. Sandlot makes many appearances in my mind, but like, th- here's one. Like, you remember the pool scene, which we don't need to go over here today, but like the pool scene, and they ask him after this pool scene, uh, he says like, man, have you been planning that? He's like, yeah, I've been planning it for years. And like, that's God with his mercy. Like, he looks from eternity past, been planning it for years, and now I pour it out on you as those who are foreknown. Like, there's mercies everywhere. Christian, you're not an afterthought. God's mercy to you isn't an afterthought. He doesn't begrudge giving it to you. He doesn't say, oops, it slipped and fell off from that guy onto you, so I guess we'll go with it anymore. No, he, he knew you, and he gave it to you. And to remember this mercy... Paul puts before us these great questions in chapters 8, verse 31 and 32. What are we going to say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Like, there's no point in anybody being against God. And he says, that's true of you now, Christian. Like, who could actually be against you that would have any ultimate bearing on your life now because you've experienced my mercies? And if you didn't know that enough, let's look at verse 32. He did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. How will he all he... Not also with him graciously give us what? All things. Again, there's no future date. There's no future thing that can cut us off from God's mercy. He goes on to tell us at the end, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we move in chapter 8 from this place of no condemnation to the end where there's future glorification. This is a chapter of the mercies of God because we're moving from no condemnation to future glorification all by the mercies of God. These are merciful promises from a merciful God. And the assurance then of these promises are going to be upheld in chapter 9. Right? That's where we saw, like, hey, we've got eternal promises in chapter 8, and we're going to go down in eternal depths in chapter 9, where Paul describes how God's word hasn't failed and doesn't fail. How has it not failed? Because he's shown mercy. Chapter 9, verse 11, he speaks of these two children. He says, though they were not born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Or in chapter 9 verse 16, he says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He lets us know that salvation has only ever happened by mercy. And we have this question rise up in us when we hear those kinds of things and we think, is that fair? Paul talks about that. You can reference those sermons if you want. And the answer is, no, it's not fair. It's better. It's merciful. That's what he's saying in chapter 9. He's the potter. He has rights over the clay to do whatever he wants with it. And what does he do? By his mercy, he turns very unneutral, against him kind of clay into vessels of mercy prepared for his glory. Chapter 9, verse 23, he's making known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. Unneutral clay, rebellion is part of their being. They are aliens to God, enemies to God, and he says of that unneutral clay, I'm making you a vessel of mercy prepared for glory. There's a great identity for you. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, you're a vessel of mercy prepared for glory. You are a display of the glory of God as he's displayed his perfect and infinite mercy in and through you. And we need to ask them, like, what kind of people receive mercy? And he tells us in chapter 10, it is people without distinction who cry out to God. Chapter 10, verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's this thought of calling out to God because we see our need. It's, it reminds me of Luke 18, where Jesus tells the parable of a tax collector and a Pharisee, and they're both praying, and there's one who's just can't even look up into the heavens, he's just beating his chest, and what's he crying out? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God never despises that prayer. And that parable was told to a people who it says, this is chapter 18, verse 9 of Luke, right before this, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Many Jews, as Paul writes, were rejecting God's mercy in the gospel, thinking 
that they were righteous. They were trying, he said, to establish a righteousness of their own. And chapter 11 describes how that's part of God's merciful plan too. How he's including Gentiles by the rejection of the Jews. And how that's part of the plan to make Israel jealous so that he might include them too. His mercy seeks to bring people to the place where the tax collector was in Luke 18 to recognize sin and cry out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if you do, here's what happens. Chapter 8 or chapter 11, verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience. If they recognize it, if they know it, if they cry out for mercy, here's what happens, that he might have mercy on all of them. And it is these mercies seen through the gospel of God written in Romans 1 through 11, seen in God's grand redemptive plan that sends Paul out of his mind into doxology at the end of chapter 11. You think about Paul, he'd experienced a lot. And we don't know timeline of all the things that happened in his life, but he'd seen and experienced a lot. Caught up in the third heaven kind of stuff. And he's a really smart guy. He's, he's aware of a lot of information. right? So there's probably not a lot that shocks him. And yet he writes, he pins chapters 1 through 11, and he gets to the end, and he can't even stop. He goes, kind of like, just, I'm going to write my fool head off now and just say, oh my goodness, how great is the wisdom and the mercy of God. Like, think about these things. It just blows his mind when he's thinking about God's merciful, redemptive plan as displayed in the gospel of God. He says, oh. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Romans has been 11 chapters of God inviting readers to behold the greatness of the mercies of God. And there's a depth to it and texture to it of all of these mercies displayed throughout this book. And the conclusion should come to this place. We should, like Paul, of, oh, wow. Get us to this place where we're like Paul, where we could, we could say, chapter 1 of Timothy 1 Timothy, where he says, Man, I know, I'm so convinced of this, that Jesus came in the world to save sinners. In other words, he's saying, he's merciful. He says, I know this because I received mercy. I'm the foremost of sinners, and I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Yet God's mercies, when he speaks of those mercies in 1 Timothy chapter 1, they remind him of his past. I was the foremost of sinners. That's what God's mercies do. We have to see our need before we turn to them. God's mercies remind us of a past that's just littered with sin, full of sin. But we can find, like Paul, in those places that where our sins are many, his mercies are more. And here's what beholding the mercies of God should do. It should lead us to the same place that it led Paul, to doxology to praise to God. It should lead us to saying things like, oh, is that word in your vocabulary with God? But that's not all that it should do. Paul's appeal by the mercies of God to behold God's mercies should lead us to the command that he gives us in chapter 12. And it should lead us to the commands he's going to give us in chapters 12 through 15. We'll start with this one. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Chapters 1 through 11, the, the explanation and description of the gospel of God, of what God has done, of what God is doing, of what God will do, should lead us to and build for us this foundation for what's to follow. They build us the foundation for all of the commands that are coming. They give us the root for all the fruit that's going to come from chapters 12 through 15. And the order of that is important and very instructive. There's no presenting ourselves to God in order to gain something from God. That's not what's going on here. There is no, I'm going to add up some of my work before God, then I'm, he might give me mercy kind of things. No, he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. In light of those, in response to those, here's what you are to do. Here's how you are to live as a Christian. And so the resource that is needed for walking in the obedience of faith is not found in us. It is found in what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. Amen. One author says it this way, we're never thrown back on our own resources, but are always invited into His. Hear the word never. 
but always invited into his. And his resources, by the way, they're infinite. They're enough. Paul doesn't say, look at God's mercies. Now dig down deep. Find this grit and determination within yourself to walk before him in a way that's pleasing to him. No, instead, as the same author says, Paul expects the fruit of obedience because he's dug down deeply to plant its roots in the rich soil of grace. And so understanding God's mercies is absolutely crucial for practical, daily obedience to God. We could say it this way. Theology drives our doxology. What we think and know to be true about God is going to produce a living before God, praise before God. Our theology should drive our living as a Christian. And chapters 1 through 11 have been very practical then in getting us to this point of all these practical commands. So it's foolish to say, hey, enough with this theological jargon, let's just get to the practical stuff. Like, enough with doctrines, let's just tell me my, my steps for how to live. Like, Paul would disagree with you trying to say that. Like, I have been telling you how to live. And it's rooted in theology. The command to present bodies as a living sacrifice is supported by what? Theology. God's mercies. It's literally as vessels of mercy prepared for glory that God calls people to present their bodies as a sacrifice. So His command rooted in theology. And so let's get to it. What does he say? Present your bodies. What a great reversal of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 24, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There their bodies were used for dishonorable things. The bodies, the body is the place, the, the instrument of sin. And now he says, let's give it to God as an instrument, all of it, for worship to God. Bodies in chapter 12 isn't speaking merely of physical skin and bones, although there is a great concreteness to it, isn't there? Concreteness to this command. It is saying you need to vote, devote one's whole self as a sacrifice to God. Present your body, your, your entire being, to God. So in poker, if you're playing poker, you, to place an all-in bet is to push all of your chips, all of your money in. Right? You're going all in. You're betting everything on the hand that has been dealt. And that's a risky move. You've got to know what other people have. You, you, you may not have the greatest hand in, in the world in your own hand. It's risky because you stand to lose everything because you just pushed everything in. You're out or you lose all your money. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, look at the hand you've been dealt. You have been dealt the mercies of God. Your hand is flush with mercies. Now go all in. Push it all in. Present your bodies to him as a sacrifice. And whereas poker, you push all in, there's risk in that. When you push all your chips in to God, there is no risk at all. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Where's the risk in that? The idea of presenting bodies as a sacrifice is that they belong wholly to God. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians that you need to know that you have been bought with a price. You're not your own anymore. You belong wholly to God. And here in chapter 12, verse 1, he's saying, give yourself, present yourself wholly to God. Truly, when we present our bodies as a sacrifice to God, we're actually only offering to him what belongs to him in the first place. He created us. We're his by creation. We're rebelling against that until he redeems us. And now we're doubly his. By creation and redemption, we belong fully to him. And all he's saying is, in response to that creation and redemption, just give God what actually belongs to him by ownership. And there's no risk in this, because this is a God who's gone all in with his mercies. And a God who goes all in with his mercies is a God worthy of all of our trust, of responding with all in kind of life. He's worthy of that. And all in, in our lives, means that all things are to flow to him. He used that language in chapter 11, the end of chapter 11. From him, through him, and to him. Means that we should do all things to 
chapter 11, verse 36, to him, so that he might be received the glory forever and ever. An all-in God calls for an all-in response to what he has done. Now, here's what I think some of us need to hear when we see this call in chapter 12, verse 1. Some of us need to get off the fence. Some need to get off the fence and push all of your chips into this pot of God's mercies and start living your life fully for Him. Be holy as belong to Him. You've belonged to other things and they haven't been merciful to you, I'm sure. Push all your chips in with this one true living God. Be all in and be fully His. But here's my fear. My fear is that many who'd say that they're all in, that they are Christians, don't live all in lives. They don't live lives that are all in before God, wholly devoted to God, because they have some exceptions. Oh, we're all in, except for when it bumps up against my future plans. I'm all in, except for when it maybe hurts my career objectives. I'm all in, except for when it alters my college goals. I'm all in, except for when it conflicts with my favorite sports activity or alters my standard of living by affecting my bank account because God's requiring not just me here, but also bank, all of me, everything that I am. I'm all in, except for when it costs me relationships, possibly even my children as God calls them to make disciples overseas. I'm all in, except for when my comfort is disrupted, when he commands me to be holy because I don't belong to myself, or when he tells me you need to stop that sin because you belong to me now. Did I poke all of our idols yet? Whatever the exceptions are that we put to this, they are either idols themselves or they're deeply connected to an idol in our life. And in all these exceptions, and many more we can name, God doesn't receive our primary affection, attention, energy, love, life. He doesn't receive our primary worship. In other words, we're saying, if we have an exception, we're not all in, not all in with this God. And what happens is that this would kind of seem okay because of how we view our lives. Like, we kind of view our lives like this guy in the picture. You see this guy? He's in the middle juggling these things. He's got all these things that are going on in his life, and his life is, is viewed as juggling these things. Now, here I've got... Now, whatever he's got there, boss, name tag. Maybe that's his house, could be the church. He's got his phone there, coffee. He's got all these social things, whatever he's got there. He's juggling all those things. And he is a, a man who moves in relation to those kinds of things. And I see at least two problems with this picture, right? One of them is, is that the guy is really big and right at the center. And let's just pretend, we'll, we'll make that house at the top a, a church and just... Let that symbolize life with God. And what we could say there is that he is, his self is at the center and God's just a part. Does that sound like a Christianity you're familiar with? But the picture of the Christian life, as commanded in chapter 12, verse 1, is overlaid everything centers around God. God is at the center, and life flows from him and to him. So everything else that might be in the picture is all under God, and all only from life with God, not individually. Like, I don't go do my God thing, and then I go do this other thing. I am a vessel of mercy prepared for glory, and I don't go do all other things. That's the only way that it works in real Christianity. How could it be any other way when considering and beholding the mercies of God? All-in kind of mercies require an all-in kind of response. So are you all in? Or is your life segmented out? Life with God is not a segmented life. Not we have a life and then part of it is segmented off and dedicated to God, devoted to God, and this part of my life is to something else. Our lives aren't to be part gods and part selves or part jobs or part whatever we could put in there. Our lives are holy to the Lord's and everything comes from that. The command isn't to present part of yourself to God. Like, hey, you know what? Arm, that's a pretty big limb. Chop that off, toss it up, and sacrifice to God. Present that to God. It's a pretty big half of you. Cut your body in half and present. Do you see how ridiculous that picture is? He says, present your bodies, your whole self 
to God. We aren't to segment out our lives, but to be wholly devoted to God in all of life. He is a God who is worthy of this, as a God who has been all in with his mercies. And by his mercies, we are doubly his, by creation and redemption. And so the only right response is to present not just part of ourselves, a portion or a segment of our lives, but all of our lives to him. He's worthy of that very thing. What does your life look like? Are there exceptions? I'm all in with God except... Are there segments? Yeah. We'll alter that picture a little bit and shrink me down and and blow up the God thing, but I still got these other things circling around me. Is it segmented? Man, stop holding back. Look at the mercies of God and go all in with Him. And the way to do this, right? Like if we see that there are some exceptions in my life, like I've been holding back in some areas or I've seen my life as segmented and I want to switch, I want to jump all in. Like we need to be careful. We don't, what we don't do is we don't say, all right, let's try harder. Let's go faster. Let's do more. Let's be more committed. What we do is we go back to the beginning and we say, let's behold the mercies of God again. And that peel from the mercies of God then comes to us as presenting our bodies to God. We behold the mercies of God and we respond and if you have some exceptions, if you have some places that you've segmented off where everything is not the Lord's, just portions of it, maybe it's your favorite sports activity, seems to consume so much time. Maybe it's your job that's like, I've got a path, I'm going in this direction, nothing can disrupt. Maybe it's those things, whatever it is, like, there's fresh mercy for that very thing being transformed by the mercies of God right now as we sit. Right now, there's mercies from God, available in our segmented, half-hearted lives that we live before God. What a joy that we can say that. So here's what Paul says. He's going to give us how we present our bodies as a sacrifice. He gives us three adjectives to describe that sacrifice. In our translations, it seems as if one, like we're a living sacrifice, and then we're described in two ways. But actually, the original is just that we're a sacrifice that is living, holy, and acceptable. There are three adjectives that all describe this sacrifice to God, that we're to present to God. It's a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice, living. That's our spiritual state before God. But we are now alive to God in Christ Jesus, just chapter 6, verse 11. Your spiritual state is not dead anymore. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God made you alive. You are now alive, and he didn't zap you up into heaven. That'd be nice. It feels like sometimes, like, I can just do the teleporting thing and, shoo, like, we're, we're done. He didn't do that. You're, you are living, you're alive in Christ. He meant for you to experience something of life with Him here and now. You are to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so, in light of that, He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's also holy. Holy, it's set apart completely for God. Your life is not your own. You belong to God, not just part of it. All of it belongs to him, and it's all to be set aside to God, in worship to God. And he says, actually, there's one more description, acceptable to God, pleasing, we could say. Think of that. Lives that started in chapter 1, bodies that were used for dishonorable things, worship that was turned toward creatures rather than creator, under the wrath and judgment of God, they started there, I've moved to this point where we can have lives that are pleasing to God. I love when my kids give me gifts. I just got a sweet little drawing from Hallie this morning. And here's what I don't do with those gifts. I don't cast them off and say, that doesn't look like that thing at all. I don't say, that color is way off. Like, you don't, that's not even the color of that object that you were trying to get. I don't say, your shape, of the, how could you have shaped it this way? I, you know what I do? I, I don't cast them off because they're not well done. I, I love them deeply because of what they are doing. They're just offering themselves to me. And I'm assuming as they go along, some things will get prettier, some things will, will improve, but that doesn't matter to me. It's pleasing to me. And our heavenly Father, the Father of mercies, Paul calls him, says the same of our lives. Yeah, it may not be the right color right now. It it may be a little misshapen. There might be some ugliness in it. But he looks at it in Christ Jesus and says, that offered to me is pleasing. What a thought. Presenting our bodies that were once used for sin and idolatry, but now in Christ are presented as a sacrifice. Please God, a holy God. He's the father of mercies. 
He knows that those bodies, those lives, our lives, he knows they're a wreck. But he prepared them for glory. And he says, and along the way, as you offer to me your wreck of a life and your wreck of a body, I'm going to conform it to the image of my son until I complete it one day. Those things are all by my mercy and they're all yours now. Amen. Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God is, he says, our spiritual worship. We could say, and maybe one of your translations says, rational worship or reasonable worship. All of those are closely related terms. In 1 Peter 2, uh, he uses both of these. In 1 Peter 2, 2, he says, only you need to long for pure spiritual milk. That's the word reasonable. Same one that Paul uses in Romans. But in verse 5, he says, yourselves, like living stones, are built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual, different word than Paul uses, Sacrifice. So these words are so closely related, so it's not a problem to translate spiritual or reasonable. But why not use kind of the normal term for spiritual worship here? I think Paul knows his audience really, really well, and he's aiming something specific at them. Even though it's maybe not too different, just the degree over helps us see what he's doing. He's saying, present your body. This presentation of your body is spiritual worship and and. Reasonable could be put in there because he has an audience that's full of things like Greeks that would need to think about what, what's reasonable, what's rational. They, they cared about those kind of things, and so he's going to hit that and say, here's reasonable worship, your body to God. But at the same time, he's going to say this is totally reasonable, but he also says this is spiritual worship, worship. And he draws up this word for worship that's a word that would have been used in the, in the kind of the cultic practice of sacrifice and worship. And what that does is he's directing this spiritual worship at both Jews and Greeks and saying to them, not only is this completely reasonable, not only is this what required of you, but it's not some sort of mechanical external thing. It's not just a cultic ceremony. It's not a a sacrifice that the Jews and the Gentiles would have known where you can just kind of go through the motions and not actually be engaged. I, I like what one commentator says when he says, the worship described does not relate to public assemblies, but to the yielding of one's whole life to God in the concrete reality of everyday existence. And that's his aim with saying spiritual worship. This is your spiritual worship. He's trying to get at them and say, hey, guess what? All of your life is reasonably used and spent in worship to the one true living God. The question for them then is, if all of life is that, then who are you directing your worship toward? Right, we, we know, like we say this often enough, right? All of life is worship. Like we don't begin worship and end worship. We are worshipers. We are worshiping. We, we can say, I'm going to worship. Or we come in here and I said, we, we gather to worship and we do. But we come here to gather together to worship. We come in worshiping. Hopefully we continue that worshiping together in corporate worship. And then we're going to leave. And guess what you're going to do when you leave? You're going to worship. You're going to assign to something ultimate value in your life. You're going to consider something as worthy of all of your life, all of your praise, all of your love. We want that to be the one true living God. Who or what are you worshiping? All of life is worship. It's okay to say you're coming to worship. We are. We're coming to worship together. Let's make sure that we know that all of life is worship. And that's what Paul's getting at. It's not just this part or this place where you go off of the sacrifice. It's not this time of the year where you go and offer this thing. It's all of life is to be spiritual worship to God, directed at God. We make it our aim to please God. And guess what? When we offer our lives up, all of our bodies as a living sacrifice, it is pleasing to God. So again, who are you worshiping? Here's what we need to know when we're looking at this and we're saying the, the who question, the what are we worshiping? There is only one who we can look to and worship, who we can say, hey, in light of the mercies of that one, we should offer our bodies. No one else can do that. Amen. There's no one else who's offered the mercies that this God has offered and bestowed. So who are you worshiping? In chapter 1, verse 25, the, the root sin was worship. Worship of the creature rather than creator. And through the mercies of God, through the gospel of God is displayed in 11 chapters. Paul calls for all of life now to be directed and offered as worship to the one true living God. That's the power of the gospel. 
that you can go from offering worship to creatures to now offering your life up as a living sacrifice in worship to the one true living God. The gospel of God makes known the mercies of God, and those mercies of God, they turn life upside down. Have they turned your life upside down? Do you know the mercies of God? Have they changed you and changed your worship from creatures to creator? To saying, oh, the riches of his mercy. What would it look like, church, for God to do that in our lives? What would it look like for us together to be a people who are a living sacrifice, wholly devoted to God? To turn us upside down afresh and anew by his mercies this morning that we might be a people that are a living sacrifice to God. My guess is that it might do what it has done in the past. It might do what the world even described it as in Acts, as turning the world upside down. Oh, church, let's behold the mercies of God. Let them turn us upside down. And then let's present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And maybe, maybe he'll turn that world upside down again. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we are grateful that although we deserved condemnation, Lord, you were pleased to show us mercy. And Lord, we know that the scripture tells us that you desired a people who would worship you in spirit and in truth. And by your mercy, Lord, you have that people. You have called us, Lord, to be all in because you are all in. And Lord, too often we, we choose not to be all in. We choose to allow our flesh to dictate our thinking and our actions and we're too easily distracted. And Lord, we know in those moments your mercy is present. But God, far be it from us that we would abuse that. That Lord, we would act out of character of who you've called us to be. Lord, help us to be a people who are all in. Who are willing to do whatever you ask us to do, Lord, because you have done everything we've needed you to do. We were desperately lost and you came to save us, God. You have already fixed us. You have already done everything we need to be done in our lives, to know you, to be restored. And you've simply called us to obey and we just pray, Father, that you would help us to walk in obedience, to worship you, whether we eat or drink or anything else that we do, God, help us to be a people who keeps you at the center. And when we fail, Lord, as we often do, remind us, we pray, and we know you will by your spirit, God, who you've called us to be. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.